But let's start today's podcast with a fun exercise. I'll play a song by tapping and let's see if you as a listener and if Anupam can recognize what song I have in mind. Are you ready? Let's go. All right. Any luck? It sounded a little like it's the season to be jolly, but I'm not sure if it's right. Um, not even close. <laughs> <laughs> All right. On that note, welcome to the Work Brain Podcast. I'm Preeti Kautamarthi. I'm a behavioral scientist and I love all things related to understanding human behavior. I'm Anupam Krishnamurthy. I'm interested in applying behavior science to solve real-world problems. At The Work Brain, we explore how we can apply interesting ideas from psychology and behavioral science to our workplace. In today's episode, we talk about the curse of knowledge and how it gets in the way of effective communication. We then look at ways to undo this curse. So back to the song, do you want to refine your guess maybe? Well, I'm going to pass. I can't think of anything better. Well, I'm not sure if that's because of my music skills or your guessing skills, but I was trying to play Mary Had a Little Lamb. Really? Oh my <laughs> god. Mary had a Now that you mention it. So why are we playing this game? We're just trying to replicate an experiment that was done by Stanford psychologist Elizabeth Newton in 1990. She divided a room full of people into tappers and listeners. The tappers had to tap a familiar song like happy birthday just the way I did by knocking their knuckles on a table and the listeners then had to guess which song was being tapped surprisingly out of 120 songs that were tapped the listeners were able to guess only 3 songs but before this experiment happened when the tappers were asked the probability that the listeners would guess correctly they actually predicted 50% but it turns out that they actually managed to get across their message only 1 in 40 times What do you think was happening there? Yeah, this is this is so interesting, right? Like anyway, like having performed this experiment right now, uh do did you feel like I had a better ch- shot at guessing it or do you think at least that I would give a better guess than I, the than the one I did? I think your guess was actually not very bad now that I think about it. It was sort of in the similar rhythm, but I didn't think in my head i thought i was being very very clear so that's this interesting discrepancy right like between a prediction of 50% accurate guesses and a reality of about 2.5% and uh, what is happening here is the uh, the tappers had a particular i mean like when they tapped that song and you might have noticed this when you tapped your own song right you might have had the tune of mary had a little lamb play in your head automatically as you tapped it out yeah did that happen yeah absolutely i was actually humming it in my head so i thought i was going pretty much on track exactly but here's the here's a twisted part like I, me as a listener has no way of accessing that tune which is playing in your head all i hear are the taps which sound like weird morse code or yeah it, it just sounds very cryptic compared to the clear tune that you have in your head and as a tapper we are unable to empathize with how the listener doesn't have access to that tune and that kind of causes this uh, this phenomenon called curse of knowledge i mean it happens in a wide variety of scenarios not just with tapping and listening um 
this happens when experts are unable to teach a subject that they know really well to beginners properly it happens with vocabulary um like let's say we know an obscure word we um, tend to assume that the rest of the world is familiar with this word as well happens with acronyms and jargons and when you go to a new job this is especially something that stands out where people keep using acronyms that you have no clue about it goes um, it also happens with technical knowledge and that's also one of the reasons why several user manuals which are written by very technical folks are not exactly user friendly what i really love about this experiment is when you start out you start out thinking that the listener's job is hard because you assume that the listener has a harder task of actually using his cognitive abilities and guessing but actually it's really hard to be a tapper because the tapper unfortunately is stuck in this curse that we are just talking about it's absolutely impossible for them to imagine what it's like to not have the knowledge of the song and that's actually a way worse position to be in than being in a listener's position where you actually know what you know that you are in a blank slate and you're starting from scratch is the kind of situation we experience when uh, we try teaching somebody like let's say in a seminar or something like that like when the roles are reversed it's actually much harder to be a teacher than a student Absolutely. and that is what we experience first hand completely agree on that for the longest time i've always been a listener but now that i've started taking workshops i've realized the teacher's job is so much harder it is so hard to actually put across your point in a way that people can actually understand So let's explore this curse of knowledge a little bit more and try and understand why this happens and what are the other related cognitive biases around this. The definition of the curse of knowledge is is something like this. So when you know something, it's hard for you to imagine what it is for someone else to not know it. And the most famous study in this field uh, is around what psychologists call the theory of mind. It involves uh, little children who are 3 years old. and a box of candies and pencils and here is how it pans out imagine you are in a room and you have what appears to be a box of candies with you and there's this 3 year old boy who walks into the room and takes a seat right across you so you then open the box of candies and you show the boy that inside this box there are actually pencils now the boy is surprised to see that there are pencils so and and then what you do is you pack this box back and you put it in the center of the table and you ask this boy uh let's say there's another 3 year old boy who walks into this room charlie now if we ask charlie what is there inside this box what would his reply be and the 3 year old boy says pencils and you ask the boy what did you think when you walked into this room and the 3 year old boy again says pencils now what is essentially happening here is the the toddler is unable to recreate this sense of innocence that he had when he walked into the room first and saw because the fact that he now knows the box has pencils uh, prevents him from even imagining that the world was different a few minutes ago and we as 4 5 6 year old children we kind of grow out of this uh, infirmity or this inability to to recognize the situation but not quite and we see this manifest with the experiment with tapping and listening where the tappers tend to assume that the listeners also have access to the same information so this was a study performed by Heinz Wimmer and Joseph Peana and that's that, that's how it illustrates how um, it's something that's inherent to us this this curse of knowledge 
I think one of the things that comes out of this whole aspect of curse of knowledge is the fact that we live in a lot of assumptions. A lot of our biases come out of the assumptions that we make. Just like the toddler made the assumption that anyone else entering the room has the knowledge that he has, we tend to also live in a lot of assumptions like that. We assume that uh, whatever information we had now, we if we had earlier, we would have made a completely different decision. Uh, we also assume that everybody is looking at us, which is a spotlight effect, right? We walk into a room and we assume that everybody is sort of looking at us and that we are the center of attention. So I think to a large extent, the problem comes from the fact that we assume what we think others are thinking at this point or others know at this point. And that's where all this set of biases come into play. Let's look at a couple of examples from our everyday life where the curse of knowledge takes hold. Uh, One thing that I can readily think of is when people give me directions to a place that they know really well. They want to be clear just as you wanted to be clear when you tapped that song. They give really specific directions. And for instance, if I were to tell you the way to the nearest bus stop from my house, you would have to go out of our house, uh, take a right at the door and walk until you hit the canal. So once you hit the canal, you walk, uh, you take a left and you walk along the canal for about 100 meters when you reach this wide main road. And you take a left at the main road, you walk another 50 meters, you cross the main road and on the other side, you'll find the bus stop. Now, how did that come across to you? Do you think if you were to catch a bus in the next five minutes, you would be able to trace out this route perfectly? Absolutely not. And as it is quite direction challenged and that kind of directions would have thrown me off completely. Right. But when I was giving those directions, what happened in my mind's eye was I had like vivid imagery because I know I know the locality that I live in. So I could I could picture the canal. I could picture walking along the street. I could picture crossing that street and and this information naturally you don't have access to right yeah. so that's that's what causes this problem in in this particular instance and the cleverest solution i've seen to this problem actually came with the host of an airbnb what she had done was she had given directions from the bus stop to her place using screenshots um, which she sent using whatsapp and on these screenshots she had actually marked directional arrows I thought this was a really clever solution. It's ingenious and I need to do this for people who are coming to my place. It's been two and a half years since we've gone on that trip and I'm still waiting for the perfect lighting conditions to go out and take these photos. <laughs> yeah, for me, I think the, my biggest example of this would definitely be at workplace. When we speak to the technical teams, especially the data science teams, uh, they've got so much knowledge to share, but they go into so much jargon and they go into models and regressions. And while we know that their insights are great and we want to know more about it, they don't spend a lot of time to translate into actual English, which people can understand. And I kind of feel bad about that because it feels like they put in so much effort and they're trying to explain something really cool to me. But just because I'm not at their level, I'm sort of missing the point of the whole thing. So for me, that's one of the biggest examples. And I hope that through this episode, I'm able to come up with some solution to help them out as well. Right. And when such a thing happens, right, like when somebody is so enthusiastic and wants to express something like that, whether it's giving directions or talking about a technical concept, it just feels rude to kind of interrupt them and tell them, hey, get to the point. Hey, tell me what this means for me. Yeah. Like it's, it's also, 
as a as a listener or as a student it's kind of difficult it puts you in a difficult spot to actually ask clarifying questions here so now that we know that we're all cursed with this bias uh, i feel like there are a lot of examples and implications of this in our day to day life the first and the biggest one i can think about is how we actually communicate and especially in corporate life but not just in corporate in general how our communication is affected by this bias for example the fact that we we tend to use a lot of jargons and we abbreviate terms and we assume that everybody understands this i remember when i joined joined my job one of the biggest things for us was this list of glossary terms that was handed down to us and we actually had to sit and understand in every meeting i used to refer to that to see what is it that people are actually talking about have you ever faced something like that so this is like a pretty entrenched problem in several companies right like in terms of people using jar- jargons and abbreviations mainly and uh, elon musk faced this with his many companies and in classic elon musk style uh, he responded to this problem by he actually sent an email to spacex employees um with the subject line acronyms seriously suck which is abbrevi- <laughs> abbreviated as ass <laughs> that's such a typical elon musk statement to make <laughs> right and in this email he had, he actually said any term that that is needed to be abbreviated would have to be explicitly approved by him the ceo now put this in perspective right like elon is a really or musk is a really a busy person he's running three to four companies i've already lost count of how many and he's these are billion dollar companies and if he sees the need to do this it speaks of two things one is how seriously he considers this to be a problem within his organization and how much it breaks communication down and the second thing is i'm sure the people who are working under him want to not do this but it almost seems like second nature to them that they just can't help themselves from abbreviating something in order to save a second or so i i always hypothesize that if you ever calculate the amount of time you have saved with an abbreviation and the amount of time people spend confounded by abbreviations my guess is that you are actually not saving a lot of time it it actually seems like a case of tunneling that we discussed in uh, the episode on scarcity right like what yeah. what a person who is abbreviating is seeing that they are saving one or two seconds from actually saying it out yeah. or typing it out whereas uh, they are causing more confusion and uh, and and actually having more losses downstream but the other aspect that we uh, touch briefly is jargon which i think is a bigger curse in our life somehow people have this whole idea that if you use complicated words you just sound really intelligent but uh, one of my best one of my favorite papers in behavioral science and it's titled really well it's called consequences of erudite vernacular utilized irrespective of necessity <laughs> problems with using long words needlessly i think it's i think it's the one of the biggest problems that the corporate world has thrown at us this whole idea that we have to use really big words to sound cool i think that's one one really big thing that we assume that people are understanding what we're saying even though we're using really complicated words it sounds smart to say these complicated words but actually there's some research which disproves this is that correct yeah absolutely in fact this particular paper the one that i'm talking about they did a very interesting experiment so they 
show these six personal statements uh, written by students for applying to an English literature course at Stanford and each version of the personal statement is at different levels of complexity so the most complex one was basically the one where they did a right click find synonym and replace with the hardest possible word <laughs> right so they would show these statements to participants and they would ask them to either accept or reject the candidate for admission and they re- at the end of the experiment they realized that the most complex statements actually had the lowest ratings and the most adverse decisions which means that the simpler you are and how you are communicating you have a higher acceptance rate and that's mostly because of fluency of reading i think the easiest way out of this is basically what in 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 literature it's called crisis maxim which is simply that whatever you write you need to be as clear as brief and as orderly as you can i think if we all remember that one line to be as simple clear and brief and orderly as possible i think we would actually do everybody around us a very big favor Steven Pinker has this unofficial test which he says uh, if you have written something show it to your grandma and get her perspective on that Albert Einstein had a similar one he said if you can't explain it to an 11 year old then you haven't really understood it uh, so that's interesting because you can go on either side of the age spectrum here correct yeah as you said i mean on the one hand you keep things simple so that people on either side of the age spectrum generational spectrum all of them understand it and the second aspect is to get external feedback right like uh, uh, you ask somebody else to explicitly read out your drafts or your your user manual and and then observe how they react to it as opposed to assuming how they would do it and that actually takes us to a related point which is communications within offices like how do we actually uh, better our workplace communication and uh, so uh, one of the things that happens at workplace is the communication between senior leadership and frontline employees and that's where we see a lot of gaps and it's understandable because for management what they care about is very technical things like maximizing shareholder value but what frontline employees care about is what do they actually do in their day to day work that helps them do that so i think uh, one of the famous examples of this would be uh, john f kennedy's famous 1961 call to put a man on moon and return him safely by the end of the decade in one of the books called uh, made to stick by chip and dan heath they imagine john f kennedy as a ceo and they say if he had to say this as a ceo he would have probably said our mission is to become an international leader in the space industry through maximum team centered innovation and strategically targeted aerospace initiatives <laughs> oh my god that sounds so true exactly but thankfully jfk was not a ceo but he was way ahead of time and he actually came up with a statement that ticks so many boxes putting a man on the moon is a simple idea it's a single idea uh, it's very connected to what people can understand it tells a story it is simple and in so many ways it's so much easier for people to just relate to that idea i think there's a lot of lessons to be learned from that instead of putting your curse of knowledge onto employees who have much bigger problems to solve maybe you need to translate it to a story that can be told in a simpler way um another related field is with meetings and this is my personal bugbear meetings take longer than they should because people don't abstract it to a level where the entire group can follow 
like managers have the risk of keeping details too abstract that they they can say things like oh we need to achieve this quarter's objective of i don't know 15% better sales whereas individual contributors might get the might get the group lost in the detail like for instance when a manager says we need 15% growth this quarter what does that mean for a developer on the team exactly like does does it mean more lines of code or does it mean less bugs so that's not clear and on the other hand in the meeting when the developer talks about a problem that they have like let's say they are facing a particular bug they go into details about how they fixed the bug and how they actually um actually had this network issue that they had to resolve through through i don't know unlocking a port on a firewall now this is the kind of detail that a manager has little value for but the developer still wants to express it because that is their world view yeah. and th- this is essentially why meetings take longer than they should have you seen this happen as well yeah yeah completely in fact it takes us to the earlier point which we were discussing that at this point if the manager asks a question and says okay so you did all that but what's the end result i think that feels that's actually bad on both sides because it makes the developer feels like feel like he's not being valued for what he's doing but that's not the point the point is that he's not able to put it across in a way that the manager can actually relate to and it works both ways it's the same thing with the manager coming up with abstract terms which the developer cannot understand i think if we go back to our ideas from communication which is that uh, how do you make sure that what you're saying is being understood the way you want it to be understood i think that would be one way for both the sides to actually think about before they communicate anything in terms of what we can do at least with regard to meetings on the one hand there's the framing that you bring up um and on the other hand it actually helps to designate like one of the things that we see in a meeting is let's say somebody is on a flow and is going into too much details it's seen as being rude to interrupt them and tell them to get to the point but designating a particular person in the meeting as a meeting owner or a scrum master whose sole job is to keep the meeting on track or to be the bad person to so to speak or be like the timekeeper um that gives them the leeway to actually interrupt someone so it actually uh, helps to designate this person to make sure that the meeting is at a level where everybody can understand yeah i think that makes a lot of sense i can imagine a lot of my meetings it should have gone much better if i had thought of this so while we're talking about communication a related topic for us would definitely be marketing i've worked in marketing for a while now and i feel like the problem that people in marketing face is the fact that they live the brand and product day in and day out i mean every day they're discussing features of the brand of the product and they are always under this assumption that their product is at the center of their customers lives too and that is so not true and there's so much there's enough evidence of that with the fact that most of advertising is actually ignored but i think that's also some in some way it reflects the same curse which is assuming that everybody else is as invested in your product and brand and hence will completely understand the communication that you're putting forward because they're in the same mind space as you can you elaborate a little more on this assumption that the product is at the center of their customers lives how does this happen i mean this happens all the time i know that whenever even for like a really small uh, feature that we are building we sort of assume that the second we put this feature out in the market customers are going to look at it and go like oh this is so great and they'll be like chatter all about it all over social media but most mm-hmm. of the times people actually don't even notice a feature till we actually talk about it and market it so i think in that sense 
we come with this problem that because we are so invested in this product and this feature, we assume that everybody else is too. But that's actually not true all the time. I remember reading this somewhere about uh, people who own iPhones. They were asked, how many other people do you think own iPhones? And somehow their numbers are so much higher than people who don't own iPhones because they just assume that because they own an iPhone, everybody else around them also owns an iPhone. And this can be particularly deadly as a marketer because exactly. yours, I mean, especially if you're looking at advertising, advertising, whether it's digital or traditional is really, really expensive. And if you are investing a lot of money on particular ads with this bias and those ads don't really perform, it's actually a huge loss. Uh, one very interesting technique I read about in uh, a book by Richard Shorten called The Choice Factory. He actually th- talks about a very important thing. He says that it's important to think like a customer. And uh, he comes up with this this technique called method planning. So he was getting his team to build an ad for an adult diaper. And it is so hard to even imagine what circumstance a customer would be under. So what he did was over a weekend, he would keep texting the planners at random points of time. And each time they received a text, they had to stop whatever they were doing and get themselves to a washroom. Okay. And when they were doing this, this helped the planners understand the experience of the target audience. Basically, the fact that they it's not in their control and that it is extremely inconvenient for them. And they had two very interesting insights from this. One, that this is a problem for customers more when they're not at home because they always have to find a washroom somewhere. Mm-hmm. And the other problem they also, an, an interesting insight they uncovered was also the fact that this whole problem becomes a burden for the family too. And the family also suffers along with you. So when they actually came up with the advertising around it, it was really well done because they were able to uh, encourage adults to use the product, not just for themselves, but also for the family's benefit. So he calls, so very similar to method acting, he calls this method planning, which is basically that actually put yourself in the exact customer's shoes and do it exactly the way they're doing. And that'll put you in a place where you'll actually think about the product from their perspective and not from the curse of knowing the features of the product and what you think it actually does. Yeah, I mean, a couple of thoughts there. Like, I, I think the parallels between method acting is is really, uh, really striking. And I think it's a super clever technique that uh, Richard Shorten uh, recommends here. But even when you were talking about adult diapers, there's so much more about this product that I would have never imagined unless I heard you talk about these experiences that they learned firsthand from actually trying this out. Exactly. And I feel like all of us would benefit from doing that. I mean, whatever product that we're trying to sell, to put ourselves in the shoes of the actual people who will be using it and seeing the experience from their side would actually make a lot of difference to how we would be marketing and communicating the product. And yeah, looking at implications on the design side, techies get a bad rap for this, especially when it, when you're talking about designing software. And yeah, it's so similar to what you mentioned with the marketing, right? Like in terms of if you are de- developing a feature and you put a lot of work in making that feature super clever, you assume that the rest of the world is going to use that feature as well. There's this there's this tool called Visual Studio, which most developers use. And it turns out that more than 95% of its features are never used or very, very rarely used. And now this would be shocking to a engineer in Microsoft who designed this product, right? Yeah. But it tends to happen all the time. And it also is the reason why user manuals are difficult. So that's actually an interesting study here. 
the more experienced you are at least in a technical field the less the less time you think it takes people to master that field and what they did was they took experienced cell phone users and they asked them how long it would take for novices to learn how to use the phone like do some basic things with the phone like sending sms's sending voice mail and so on mm. the experts predicted about 13 minutes when it in fact took 32 minutes and it, what was interesting is the longer somebody used the cell phone the more they underestimated the complexity of the task yeah i don't think there can be a better example of actual example of curse of knowledge than that yeah uh, one other uh, story one interesting story i read about recently so uh, this was like way back way back before user interface and design were a big thing so back in 1979 uh the 3 mile island accident happened in the us which was basically a partial nuclear meltdown it was one of the worst accidents in us uh, nuclear power plant history so there was a lot of analysis later of what happened and why did it happen and what they realized was that the engineer who designed the nuclear reactor he came up with this indicator light that was there and um the person who was operating it saw the indicator light and he thought that the light was on so uh, it's probably functioning fine but then it turns out that the light was actually indicating something else altogether it was supposed to indicate just the fact that the power is on but the operator read that as something else and he ended up keeping the valve on for too long and a lot of coolant was let out into the machine and that ended up causing a huge disaster so when they actually did analysis on this and they asked the engineer who designed the reactor he said hey everybody knows what uh, light indicator stands for how did he not know that this stands for power so uh, don norman who's like known as the god of uh, design so he actually says it in a so he was actually taken to that place and he looks he looked at that control room and he said the control room and computer interfaces at three mile island could not have been more confusing even if they had tried I want one person to read the story and that's the person who designed my microphone the one that I'm using right now because it has this LED which indicates uh, which glows green when I pl- plug the microphone in hmm. and it stays green whether the microphone is off or on okay so even if the m- mic is in off position it glows green uh. and as a user I'm not able to uh, so it, it's it's indicating something completely different from what I intuitively think it's indicating I'm just glad that your mic doesn't trigger any nuclear accidents. <laughs> Someday it might. <laughs> you never know. Hey Alexa, cause this nuclear meltdown. Yeah, so how do we resolve this at least from a design perspective? What do you think? I think one of the things and it's a great thing that's been happening in the design world and that's the whole idea around user feedback and getting people to try out things before uh actually letting them out in the market and i think all companies have developed a very robust practice of user testing of getting people into labs showing them their products their apps and getting them to test it out and there also there's also a very strong at least in the tech companies i know there's a strong culture of experimentation where they do ab tests and they let limited sets of people see the app and see the experiences and then start slowly rolling it out and i think that's probably one of the best developments that's happened in the design world Yeah, I totally agree. Uh I think the phenomenon of alpha and beta testing is also uh, related here and also, uh, the solution that I had in mind is also kind of related uh which again has its origins in the tech world and it's it's a term called dog fooding. Jargon alert. 
dog fooding is a term that software developers use to roll out their own products internally it it comes from eating your own dog food so so they recognize that initially when the software is built it usually is worse than people think it is and that's why they do this Microsoft introduced this term and now it's widely practiced by Google, Facebook and every other tech company. The most interesting story I came across was was Facebook. So back in 2012, um Facebook had great performance on iPhones but poor performance on Android. So they incentivized employees to switch from um switch to Android and then they blocked fa- the Facebook website internally to force them to use the Android app. and back in 2012 i don't know as an android user you might also relate to this first hand this improved the performance of the facebook act dramatically i remember back when uh, pixel was quite new and this was during the initial launches of pixel uh, there used to be stories about how google was giving out the pixel phone to its employees to have them tested i wanted to get into google just so that i could get my hands on one of those devices So that's been an interesting discussion and we've had a lot of ideas that we discussed. What do you think are the top 3 things for our listeners to take away? Right, we looked at a variety of applications across fields. In terms of resolving the curse of knowledge, they broadly fit into three categories. Uh one of them is to seek external feedback. The second one is to reframe and take the outside view, and the third one is to go from abstract to concrete. Now we can look at how some of the examples that we took um actually fall into these right like in terms of seek external feedback we had uh, yeah we had the uh, try to get a perspective of uh, either a 11 year old or your grandmother or try to get feedback from people who read your drafts or listen to your speeches and the second point related to reframing to take the outside view um this is something that we looked at um at least with the example that we saw on method planning and my favorite uh, takeaway is the idea of going from abstract to concrete so the way john f kennedy spoke about putting a man on the moon what can we do on our day to day communication that actually makes people understand and relate to what we are actually talking about uh, for me the best definition of communication which actually puts all of this together is that it's not enough to take responsibility for speaking correctly you must take responsibility for being heard correctly and i think our episode today spoke a lot about that and what we can do to actually achieve that so on that note that's it for today's episode you can follow us on at the workbrain on twitter and you'll find references and recommended reading for this episode at our linkedin page we would love to hear your thoughts about this episode please drop us a note at theworkbrain@gmail.com the visual design for the podcast as well as the music for the podcast was made in house Thank you for tuning in and stay safe in these uncertain times.